1: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and NA, member FDSE.
0: Welcome to the
1: New Books Network.
0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to New Books and Literary Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. My name is Dan Moran. I'm thrilled to be here with Ben Davies, co-author of Reading Novels During the COVID-19 Pandemic, just published in early 2023 by Oxford University Press. In reading novels during the COVID-19 pandemic, the authors, Ben Davies, Christina Lupton, and Joanna Gorsman-Schmidt, talk about the ways in which people in the United Kingdom and Denmark were affected by the periods of lockdown and how the period of lockdown affected their reading habits. Ben Davies is a senior lecturer in English at the University of Portsmouth, and I'm thrilled to be talking to him today. Welcome, Ben.
1: Hi, hi, Dan. Thanks. This is um uh, great to be with you. And even if virtually, yeah, this is fantastic. Thank you.
0: So let's begin with the title. The title, you know, is as straightforward as you can get. And it refreshingly avoids the requirement of, you know, every academic book nowadays having the phrase, the colon and the subject of the book. So your book, and this is what drew me to it, is literally about people who were reading novels during the COVID-19 pandemic. So you call this a work of, quote, literary sociology, and that's what drew me to it. So, so talk about that. What drew you to this project, you and your fellow authors?
1: Yeah, so actually, um, T- Tina and I had already been corresponding early in January 2020 about a possible project on examining reading habits across Europe. And then, as we know, a little bit, a few weeks later, the COVID pandemic sort of hit and we were in lockdown. So then we thought, well, we could use this as a particular moment to study because we're both interested in novels and time. That was our own background. Um, and also we saw a lot of early um, journalism and even academics saying now is the time to read. And then you just put in whichever large novel you want, Proust, um, Moby Dick, um Anna Karenina, Ulysses. So, and we thought, and we also saw there were some early statistics coming out about book buying. Book buying increased um, rapidly, particularly the week before lockdown in the UK. I think Waterstones had like a four hundred percent increase on regular sales, or something like that. But what we were interested in was, um, you know, the reality of this. It's um. It's one thing for people to buy books, but as we know, it's very different if they actually read them or how they read them. Um, And stats and lending figures would only ever tell a very partial story. So that's what drew us to the project, actually, trying to figure out, trying to be able to work out, you know, what is actually happening? What role will books play in this moment in history? And how will we, how can we sort of navigate and begin to understand this? Um, So that was really the impetus for that,
0: yeah. Can you talk for a minute about that phrase, literary sociology, and how? Because I thought that was—I underlined it in the book. I thought that was such a great way to describe. If someone said to me, "What's this book about?" I'd say, "That's exactly what it is: literary sociology." Yeah.
1: So what 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 we were interested in um, was examining because this book is really an examination of a particular period in time. So we've seen other forms of sort of literary sociology. Where they, where people have either looked at, um, you know, for instance, self-help books or reading women's um, reading in prisons, um, but what we're interested in is what actually the time, because yeah, the time and space of reading at a particular moment. And in order to do that, um, I'd say it's essential that you actually do some ethnographic fieldwork where you either interview or talk to readers in some way because the the focus is really on how people are reading at this particular moment so it isn't just um, what we might think of as traditional literary criticism we're really interested in what books mean and how they change um, at certain points in time
0: Yeah, it's a terrific book for people who love books. I have to say, it's a terrific book for for people who love books. So let's talk more about, again, about the title and your overall approach before we get into the surveys. You know, you focus on novels. Now, that was a question I was really interested in asking you because people read all sorts of things. You know, this might have been the time somebody finally read Gibbon or or, or a lot of other things. So I was wondering about why you decided to, to focus just on novels
1: okay so there's the there's the sort of practical answer to that is that that's our own sort of um academic um background but also um novels novel reading has often been associated with some sort of idealized um future time when we have time when this is what we're going to do um so that was part of our thinking there and also um it also sort of featured in some of those stats about novel buying, um, you know, was had increased. So that was part of it. But it was really that sort of idea that when we get time, we will, we, we, you know, we will read Proust or when we have the spare time, we will read, um, you know, uh, novels. Novels feature particularly as some sort of um, activity that require a lot of time to read. But I should say we do also, as you know, you've read the book. There are that we do talk about poetry and nonfiction as well, but the focus is very much on novels, uh, and also novels as a way to organize or explore time. Uh, Yeah,
0: I loved how you, and it's funny you mentioned Proust over and over as an example here in the book because there's definitely an element where the lockdown made people think, well, now I should read Proust. Like it's not like I can now I can go through all my you know dime store detective novels which are fun you know for different reasons but there was definitely this this vibe that well now you should be reading Moby Dick you should be reading, I mean I remember I read The Ambassadors for the first time during lockdown because I and I'm like I finally I'm finally going to read The Ambassadors so so can you talk about that like what what is this strange impetus where we have to read a quote-unquote important novel during lockdown
1: yeah I think that's really interesting I think a lot of that came again from those sort of early um journalistic pieces um about what you should read and also the idea that now I guess part of that is to do with the idea that you know for people who had more time and that's something we talk about not everyone did that's obvious um but there was also the idea going along with that that people now had more um, time for focus concentration and you know there are various as we know there are lots of cultural um there's a lot of cultural capital invested in the idea of reading you know Proust or the ambassadors um but um, it's interesting, when you do this sort of ethnographic work, you actually get to see the realities behind this, and I would say that some readers did see this as a moment in time when they would be able to do that, and that's what they wanted to do. But we also have readers who said, no, um, I'm actually used, you know, I'm sort of fed up with this idea of what we have to read, and now I'm going to be selfish and just read whatever I, the hell I want, basically. And I think that's, that's that's as legitimate as not, you know, ticking off some Um, sort of classics.
0: Yeah. Right, right. The lockdown is hard enough. I'm trying to, I'm trying to homeschool my kids and when I finally get time to read, I want to read Agatha Christie and that's fine. (laughs) Yeah,
1: exactly. A lot of people had that attitude as well. Um, Yeah. And and actually it's quite interesting in terms of, you know, the, the idea of literary value and taste. But for a lot of people that just didn't matter at all.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. Because all that stuff was stripped away. Because I I, I don't have to impress anybody. I'm I'm I don't know if this is the end of the world. So yeah. I'm gonna read what I want to read. Yeah.
1: Uh, you, some people try to impress people with their Zoom bookshelves, right? But <laughs> you know, that's a different thing from actually what people do. Yeah.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's talk about how you gauge that because you talk in your book about how you distributed these surveys and and to actually gauge what people are reading. Because somebody that that hasn't read the book or is unfamiliar with this this Endeavor might say, "Well, how do you possibly know what people are are reading, right?" And you reproduce those surveys in the book. I actually took some of them myself as a reader to kind of see how what my answers would be, right? So, so talk about those surveys. Like, how did you how did you come up with them? Because I imagine that was a lot of work to figure out. We're sending these out. Like, what are we going to ask? So, how do you gauge what people have read?
1: So the so as you, as people can see in the book that you know you can see the survey questions start off with the sort of basic more quantifiable elements I guess, uh, and then open up to more open-ended commentary questions. Um, so it did provide us. We'd already seen some of these major surveys um, done sort of by uh, various reading agencies, and we were sort of building on those I guess, but we weren't as interested as they were in these sort of huge statistical analysis what we were really looking at were and looking out for were the qualitative comments about how people describe their reading when they were reading and what they are reading and why and for us the other element was that was a way to get interviews because we have a question there saying you know would you like to be interviewed would you be willing to be interviewed so um the surveys were distributed in the UK and Denmark and once we yeah you, as you said there was a lot of um preparation and sort of um working you know designing those surveys because you know the responses are only as good as the questions you can put in um and then once we had all those then it was a question of reading every single one and doing some sort of basic data analysis and then looking at the qualitative comments and then following up and seeing which people would be uh willing to be interviewed um so There's a sort of, I guess, there's a filtering element that the large um, surveys done by the reading agencies offered these sort of huge um, statistical analysis. Then our surveys, we still had a bit of statistical analysis, obviously, but then we were focusing much more on the commentary and the qualitative analysis, which then leads to the interviews. and so I think the book is much more than a statistical analysis. Actually, the stats aren't really the things we were particularly interested in, in some ways.
0: Yeah. I remember the, the anecdotes more than the statistics. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. How many people responded to your surveys?
1: I think we have um, about 800 and something respondents um, for okay. the surveys and those surveys. The, yeah. And as I said, we're following on from much larger surveys. Um and then we interview around um, over 60 people,
0: right? yeah, cause it's really interesting, right? Because I've done that too. like we've we've all gone on Goodreads, for example, to read what other people have thought about books we love. It's just like a fun thing to do on your phone, right? And and it's kind of like, and we love to I, I, maybe this is a weakness of mine, but I love to read like one star reviews of of books I love, and you think like, what are you talking about, right? But like your your book was so much fun because you have that that you almost have like a cast of characters in the beginning of people you quote great. and it's it's really interesting to see because we know we might know what academics think. Or what critics think but it's a great window into like what do regular people think and what did they read
1: yeah and actually i think um we all found that in some ways that the, those characters those um interviewees who crop up um repeatedly they do become like characters that you can follow um and in some ways, they're sort of the heroes of the the protagonists of the book. You, know, you can follow those journeys, you can see how they're getting on and what they're reading. And that was really fascinating. Doing the interviews was also fascinating because we met people, almost all the interviews had to be done on Zoom because of lockdown. And you met people um, sometimes in very difficult circumstances, um, some quite heartbreaking scenarios where they... Might be completely on their own or completely overwhelmed, or you know, um, but they were still taking the time to talk to us, which you know, we're grateful for that, and um, we acknowledge that obviously in the book. Um, and it was, yeah, it was a fascinating, as you said, there is a sort of um, uh, curiosity, I guess, w- w- which we all have if we read about what do other people think about these books, or as you say, you can go on any goodreads or you know book selling websites and see and some of the reviews are very funny some are very critical and um in, you know incredibly insightful and often bring up things that so-called professional critics wouldn't have noticed i think so yeah it was really just it's absolutely fascinating and we um, met a whole array of people in different circumstances in different um situations about uh, and just getting them to talk about their reading and listening to that was you know really uh um productive and and fascinating yeah
0: that's great. That's great. So let's move into let's let's move into beyond the statistical analysis okay, because yeah. that's for me that was the real hook of the book. So so like we said it's not just stats. Your book is really if someone asked me I'd say it's a philosophical inquiry into the relationship between three things, right? We got books, the act of reading and time. And here's a quotation from your book. You say, quote, "Novels might be things for which time is made, but they are also ways of making time." Now that that maybe put the book down for a second. Like I thought that was a great, that was your mic drop, as we say. So let's talk about what did the pandemic do to our sense of time and how do books intersect with that? Okay.
1: So I think one of the things we try to make clear or, or investigate is the idea that there wasn't any singular experience of time. Um, it, you'll often see people talk about pandemic time or Corona time, which we talk about. Um, But, you know, some people seemed to gain time because they didn't have to commute, for example. Some people lost a lot of time, particularly, I would say, those who suddenly had to homeschool. Um, And books. um, So our sense of time, I think for a lot of people, it was almost a shared sense that in some ways our experience of time changed, but in different ways for different people. And we can think about why that is. Obviously, being in the UK, we have very strict... Um, lockdown laws, you weren't allowed out apart from one hour a day, you know, to do exercise or to go to the shop. So again, being stuck inside, being confined, which again is another chapter in the book, changes the sense of time. Um, And books play into that um, because sort of under this sense of um, crisis, under this sign of crisis, In some ways, we saw that reading helped people to deal with or contend with this sort of spectre, if you like, of unstructured time. Because that was one thing that was also lost, the idea of um, rhythms and structures and routines. Um, I think we're much more now, because of the pandemic, used to working online. But at the beginning, that wasn't the regular routine for most people. Um, it also seemed, reading also seemed to help readers in some sense win over or gain some sense of time for themselves. It's something they could do. Um, and what our readers told us was it was also particularly important in this overly um, online time. So um, a lot of readers talked about, particularly print books. We do have a, readers talking about audio books and reading digitally as well, but a lot of people talk about the beauty or the benefit of picking up a physical book as being something that you can't really multitask with. It's quite hard if anyone, you know, as readers know, it's quite hard to read a book and talk to someone or watch something at the same time. And whilst their days were taken up with Zoom calls or work online, that seemed to be one way they could actually gain time um, over a sort of online existence. And also, um, The other thing we saw was that at that point in, you know, uh, 2020, early 2020, a lot of, obviously a lot of people were scrolling the news, scrolling and moving quickly between different screens. And the the news media was unrelenting, but there wasn't really any sense of control or structure to that. And novels, as, as we talk about in the book, as we know, they're always completed. When we read them, there's always um, an already there-ness. So again, it gave readers a sense of control, a sense of structure. um, And as a lot of theorists have written about, you know, offers a sort of small scale model of the time of life way. Um, And the other thing, just to finish, we also um, saw a lot of people using various forms of um, book logging and diary writing and ticking off books as a way again to get gain some sense of agency or some sense of accomplishment and achievement in this this point in time so yeah books played a really important um, aspect in that some um, sort of uh, experience of lockdown time or pandemic times
0: we call it yeah that's fascinating you have a chapter about reading outside and i remember myself being on lockdown and and i would say okay i'm gonna go sit outside now and i'm gonna read there's a conference i'm gonna read the next chapter and, and I'm not coming inside until I finish it, and I can't do anything else. And the Zoom will still be there, but it's definitely like regaining a sense of control, right? Yeah,
1: yeah. And there's there's a there's a, there's a woman in the book who says um, to her kids, "I'm going off for my lunch break, and I'm going to listen to um, a fantasy series, and don't disrupt me <laughs> unless the house burns down." Um, <laughs> yeah, so it's definitely a way to sort of gain or protect, I guess, time alone. Um, but also, there's another one of the um, readers I sort of became fascinated with here is a is a woman called Sophia who listens to Anna Karenina um the whole thing, which I think is about thirty three hours, she has to shield in her London apartment because she um uh had some sort of immuno uh, issue, immune deficiency, so she couldn't go out and risk being in contact. And yet she quickly gets sort of bored of her life at home. And she listens to Anna Karenina all the time, doing the housework, doing work. And that sort of relationship, I think, is really interesting, this relationship to characters and to a sort of narrative, which in some ways is about um, living vicariously. So yeah, again, she's gaining time for herself um, in a situation where her other outlets of her normal sort of cultural life and travel are completely curtailed, basically, or cut off.
0: Yeah, one one of the things I found myself thinking as I read was that this idea about books books helping us control our sense of time. You said before you mentioned that a lot of bookshops they reported like a run on sales. Well, I don't know if this was true in the UK but but in the states there was a big run on jigsaw puzzles. Jigsaw puzzles became very scarce and i kept thinking to myself you know including my i was buying them myself but i kept thinking about how books and jigsaw puzzles are similar because when you do a jigsaw puzzle it's raw time like you can't really multitask when you do a jigsaw puzzle it's kind of like reading like wouldn't you say yeah. they're kind of similar
1: yeah and also that's really yeah that's interesting And i guess they both um end up at a point of completeness right the, you know the idea is that at the end um of a novel or a jigsaw you can look on the whole thing and understand the whole um, model basically yes yeah, so i think that's really interesting i don't know about i'd have to look in to see whether jigsaws were um running out in the uk but that's yeah i think that i think that makes perfect sense it's a something to do with um people having to you know somehow manage or um use their time um, yeah I mean, we the, had a
0: giant puzzle out on the ping pong table you know and we had a five thousand piece puzzle was okay i'm gonna do this for an hour now and then that's like you've also like kind of marked time like you know you're like the cat of monte cristo like marking days like okay this got me through another hour and you're right i'm working towards some sense of completion and it's just like rereading ulysses or or, uh, yeah. or something.
1: yeah and i guess with the jigsaw again the completedness is shown to you because you have the picture or the box so you know where <laughs> right. it's going um and a novel the the future or the what's to come is already there i'm like yeah. than- what was happening with the pandemic. We didn't know where it's going to end up.
0: Oh, that's great. Yeah. yeah, and also when you read a novel, you know, you can you can tell by your thumb, you know, eventually there's another 100 pages and we'll find yeah. out if, you know, Frodo destroys the ring or something like that. Yeah. But there's we know it's gonna crash. end. Yeah. Yeah, we yeah. know it's gonna, but, but especially in the early days of the pandemic, you know, we didn't know, like, how, does this go, is this our life now forever yeah. or? Yeah, and we, you
1: know, it, 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 in some ways it's not over.
0: Yeah, right, that's true.
1: So yeah, I think that's interesting. That sort of ongoingness, as opposed to the idea of um, finishing or completing or something yeah. being completed. Yeah,
0: it's it's almost like we're living in a novel now, and we kind oh. of think we're towards the epilogue, but we're not really sure. Yeah. If, and more drafts might come in.
1: And there might be another twist. I'm sure.
0: Yeah, yeah, let's hope not. So all right, let's let's talk about specific chapters. There's a chapter you devote to uh, what people read. You call it quote plague literature, and and you talk about you know the, the number one you know, a nominee for this, which is The Plague by Albert Camus. So it makes sense that people would turn to this novel, you know, in 20 and 21. So, you know, what did readers want from this book and what did you learn?
1: So a lot of, a lot of people we spoke to, um, obviously, it was already sort of in the air, as you it? like, it was, it was in the news or, or people, although or quite early um, pieces about, you know, the sort of uncanniness um, of it being read now. Um, so a lot of our readers talk about one you know sort of turning to it with us get to try and i guess get that sense of resonance or the way in which it it could potentially mirror or not the situation they were going through again, possibly as a way to gain some sort of control over this point in time um because obviously that novel again is completed, so whatever's going to happen they will get to and see um but I think what's interesting there is that. Um, it may not be what they turn to, but what we can see is that the status or the way texts work, possibly if we think about allegory as we do, or realism, um, that can change depending on the time and space in which they're read. So obviously for a long time, this novel has been seen as an allegory, you know, that the plague is allegorical. Whereas I think what um, a lot of our readers are seeing were that sort of shift and actually, for example, the slipperiness of the time in the, in the plague, sort of actually, instead of being some sort of allegorical device or or, or moment, became much more realist in that sense. The, the, it's some, the readers talk about this, that actually that sense of slippery time or endless time became more like something that actually they were experiencing. So it had a much more sort of literal resonance. I'm not sure, I don't think that's why they went to it to begin with, but that's what um, readers sort of spoke about happening. So again, it it sort of um, fits with that idea that in order to um, sort of find that out, you've actually got to do some ethnographic work as well as critical reading, because one of the arguments we make, and the central argument, is that books exist in time and space. They're not sort of vacuum packed and only exist in sort of, you know, some sort of lab. Um, they actually require readers, and readers again exist in time and space. So yeah, the the, the reading of the plague, and other dystopian novels, Severance again, that was another one that um, was interesting because obviously um, both of these are written before um, lockdown and quarantine, and so they have that sort of uncanny nature to them. And then there are other novels that start to come out quite soon into the pandemic which tried to capture that sense so again there's a sort of difference between those the sort of retrospective or or almost real-time accounts as opposed to ones that came before but then fit in to that reading so yeah a lot of people i think the other thing to say is in our work we found it was almost a 50 50 split between people wanting to read about plagues and people saying no i'm not going anywhere near that stuff yeah um, so again, I think it's quite interesting, some people reading as a way to escape, that's a very, you know, um, uh, sort of um, uh, typical viewpoint, but also people reading to, for all sorts of reasons, to become more informed, to experience things that seem similar to the time. We we have a chapter, again, about um, reading and race. So a lot of people were, after the murder of George Floyd, um, people were reading as a way to Um, experience and to educate themselves into things that they weren't um, that familiar with. So one of the things hopefully the book shows up is all the reasons um, people read. And it isn't just um, as a lot of sometimes it's dismissed as escapism, as escapism or pure entertainment, which it is. And I think that's important. Um, But it also, as we know, people read for all sorts of reasons and gain all sorts of um, things from reading.
0: Right, going back to what you said about whether you read the play, the novel allegorically or not, what's what struck me is that you know the the, the books don't change, but we do.
1: Yeah, yeah, and and yeah, we do, and also the the books, um, I guess, have different um, affordances or resonances depending on where and when and read, they're, read. Yeah, you know? where yeah. and when,
0: I'm Sure, where you read them too, physically where you read them as well.
1: Yeah. Um, and we talk about that because we talk about it's very different to read um, The Plague as a French high school student at school reading it for an exam as it is for, say, you know, somebody, I don't know, in, in New York or somewhere reading it um, during lockdown.
0: Yeah. So, what would you say about these people? Don't figure that much into your book because your book is about about novels and works of literature. But I just want to ask you I'd like kind of a side question. One of the books I found myself reading during the plague was a book uh, by the historian John Barry called The Great Influenza about the, you know the Spanish. And I went to that because I wanted to see what you know. And I also reread Defoe, the Journal of the Plague Year. Right. So, what would you say? What would you say about readers who went to plague writing for that reason? Like, what? How how do those connect to people who went to novels?
1: Yeah, so we do... There's a little bit about that, but um, um, there's an interesting section where somebody is much more comfortable with reading the sort of historical accounts than they are with novels, um, which, again, I think speaks to the way in which perhaps character is important there and how we become attached or identify or distance from characters. Um, But I think the novel offers um, something slightly different, right? It offers... um, a sort of situatedness and an experiential element to those stories, whereas I, whereas the people we spoke to who are reading the non-fictional um, accounts, the Great Influenza, which I also picked up, um, I, I think we're reading it for much more for an informational, um, almost documentarian basis. Uh, and obviously, there are an overlaps between novels and other forms of writing, not to say that, but I think the experience is different um but that's what the readers were saying um and um yeah and again some people just didn't want to go to those forms in either way you know either in fiction or non-fiction um but there is a reader phoebe who talks actually quite eloquently about reading non-fiction as opposed to fiction and being finding fiction in some ways much more um disturbing and distressing Uh,
0: Yeah, you made me think as I read. You know, when I was talking about the Great Influenza, that you you read a, a work like the Great Influenza, and it's that's historical time, but the time you experience in a novel is it's almost like hermetically sealed, and that you, you know it's a self-contained thing. Other people can write about the Great Influenza or you know um, you know the the bubonic plague and have different opinions and things like that, and you're conscious of that as you read, right? But when you read when you read Ulysses, you know every time you pick it up, it is June sixteenth, nineteen o four. I mean, it's the same. Literally, it's the same day. And there's something about like the, like the hermetically sealed nature of time in a novel that you made me think about when I read your book. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. And I think, um, yeah, that, again, that idea of a model or a sort of um, experience of time that's fixed almost um, and being situated within that. As, um, and that definitely was opposed to the um, ever developing new cycle. Um, and we talk about that in terms of um, George Eliot and other classical writers almost offering sort of a godlike overview of this microcosmic um, society or village. Yeah.
0: yeah, because the news cycle, of course, has it's a novel without end. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, exactly. And it's always refreshed and updated and changes. And as you said, um, it's always ongoing.
0: Yeah, and there's no there's no um, unifying intelligence to it. So when you read the Mill on the Floss, there's a unifying intelligence to the whole thing, and you might be confused as you go through the book. But at least you know there is someone. You know, George Eliot is a presence here. But when you're when you're doom scrolling, as you say, there's no there's no you know things fall apart. The center cannot hold. Yeah,
1: and also, um, uh, when you're doom scrolling, you're not just sticking to one site or one source. Or you know, you go down all these other avenues it's interesting because i've just been reading um no one is talking about this the patricia lockwood um novel which is which she does try to replicate that sort of experience of getting lost in the portal as she calls it, the internet which is is visually different but again you still get this sense of an overarching structure because you know randomness still in the novel is structured in some way um Whereas on the internet or on 24-7 news, it doesn't really feel like that. Yeah. Yes.
0: And certain novels, now we can push this even further, is that certain novels feel that way and don't feel that way. So if you read a very, very like experimental novel or, or, or something that's going to have to take you a lot of time, that's different, say, than reading Agatha Christie or Arthur Conan Doyle, because those, those, the wonderful thing about those novels is that they're controlled, right? Like, the, Agatha Christie, those novels are tightly controlled and they really are sealed. And so even novels themselves can do different things with our sense of time and completeness.
1: Yeah, definitely. And um, uh, although they're always, always completed already, they're already there. But yeah, there are different um, uh, ways of playing with that or manipulating it. And, I, and crime fiction was another um, selling genre during covid and particularly again i think that comes back to the idea particularly in golden age crime fiction that everything is solved everything is resolved and um you know pyro will come in and wrap up all the loose ends and everyone can go on living happily so it's quite comforting right it's um um and i think that makes absolute sense in that sort of in those sorts of um times yeah
0: yeah absolutely let's move on a little bit my favorite chapter was the one titled old books and new times And that reminded me of why, you know, they say New Yorkers never visit the Empire State Building. You know, they always can, so they never do, right? So something similar seemed to come into play with books. Like, we've always had the chance to read Proust. We've always had the chance to read Dostoevsky, right? But we didn't. It sat there on our shelves, but but now we could, right? Now, you specifically talk about Jane Eyre as kind of this representative example of how some readers' relationships to the classics change during lockdown. So can can you talk about that chapter?
1: Yeah, so there's a very practical element to this. Um, At the very beginning of lockdown, at least in the UK and Denmark, you know, shop shut, um, access to books was curtailed. So a lot of people just turned to whatever was on their shelves. Um, And a lot of those books were classics that had either been read a long time ago or had never been read. Um, So there was very much a practical um, element to that. We also see... um, people rereading a lot. So um, there was a deliberate as well as a sort of um, accidental turn to some of these texts. Um, And there are some stories in the book where we see people picking up Jane Eyre um, to reread. And there's one case in there, which I think is particularly interesting, where a parent rereads Jane Eyre, but she reads it with her teenage daughter, um and we talk there about the sort of way in which book reading during the pandemic was also a form of parenting and care and they have two quite different sort of reading experiences the the, the mother who's also a teacher um re re-reads Jane Eyre which she's read several times before and it connects her to her earlier reading self and it takes her back in time to a, a more stable time so again there's the element of sort of reading as well, um, taking us back in time or re-identifying ourselves as who we used to be when we re- reread. And then with the daughter, it's a new read, and she struggles with some parts, some parts are a bit too dark or sort of go over her head, but it is a, it is a joint enterprise. And I think the other thing with Jane Eyre is, um, you know, it, it is a novel that features typhoid. It is a novel that features, obviously, um, forms of confinement. Um, so again, the, the, this novel, if you like, um, becomes to have different resonances when it's read in lockdown in these situations than it might do, particularly in the classroom, say again, or or just as a a, a joyous read. Um, so yeah, d- people turn to these books that are often long neglected or bought and not um, ever read, and as I said, sometimes for practical reasons, other times more deliberate. Um, it might go back to the idea of ticking off another classic. Or particularly forms of rereading. Um, and there's another woman who talks about rereading George Eliot and it takes her back to when she was a teenager reading with a torchlight under the covers in boarding school. Um, uh, so again, we see the way in which these books sort of operate um, differently at different times and in different sort of systems or different forms of value, I guess you know. Um, cultural um, value versus much more personal identification and resonance but I think the parenting in that chapter is really interesting um, and that relationship between the two the mother and daughter through or mediated through this novel and just to finish one thing a lot of people we interviewed also spoke about was how once lockdown we were well into lockdown reading was often the thing they would speak about to the people they phoned or chatted with because not much else had happened during the day because everyone was locked in their house. So um, it's quite interesting, that sort of literary gossip almost or conversation, they would end up talking about Anna Karenina on the phone to their friends um, and sort of really seeing some of these characters almost as um, not quite real, but you know they took on an extra value in their lives because they weren't having the usual social um, meetings that they would have. Um. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That, that surprised me because if somebody had said to me before I read your book, well, what, what novels do you think are, are going to be, dis- I'd say, well, the plague that that's right there. Right. <clears throat> but Jane Eyre was such a nice surprise. And the more I read your book, the more I thought to myself, wow, like what a perfect lockdown book, Jane, because about confinement, trying to make your way in the world and literally the typhoid, which I'd forgotten yeah. about. I mean, well, I had that, read yeah. Jane Eyre.
1: That's interesting because a lot of people forget the typhoid And, you know, I don't think I'd even really thought about that for a long time. And again, um, it's something that's overlooked, but it takes on a new resonance or value um, during that reading.
0: Do you think there was any connection between – you talked about – you said earlier going outside for an hour a day for exercise. Do you think there's something in this idea that now I'm going to read – I'm going to read Bronte and Elliot and and Proust and Joyce that there's something about I should be exercising my mind because I've been in front of Zoom all day. I'm in front of screen. Like I have to do something for my own self-improvement.
1: Yeah, I definitely think that was part of it. Um, uh, again – just the change of media, if you like, is one part of it. Changing from a screen to, um, as we said, particularly print books was part of it. But also, um, I think people there are some people in the book who talk about the need for much more complex forms of communication or exploration that, that they were used to. That also works the other way, that sometimes all you can deal with is um, something easy or something mindless. And actually, I should say, that's one thing we do talk a lot about in, in the book, is how difficult reading was for people as well during lockdown. So it wasn't, you know, everyone wasn't just going around reading hundreds of books and having a great time. We talk about, form, you know, people's um, attention levels were um, curtailed, people's um, emotional, you know, states also affected, because reading is something that, at least even the most basic book, demands something of us. We can't just sit there and let it sort of glow. You can, but then you end up not remembering what you've just read and that sort of thing. So, yeah. um, But I do think there was an element of that sort of, um, yeah, uh, you know, sort of, challenging yourself or at least wanting sort of more complex forms of um, entertainment and engagement
0: yeah yeah you have i have a quotation here from you you say that classic novels excuse me can exist in two systems of meaning and here's your quote you say there's one system of meaning where they circulate as recognizable objects of literary value and another system where they provide sites of more personal pleasure and it's kind of funny like so my i guess like for some people a book like jane eric the venn diagram overlapped
1: Exactly yeah, and um there are certain books that are always sort of more to one side than the other, right there are right. you know certain classics which will always be better known for their sort of um uh literary value, and then there are certain books jane Eyre is 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 quite a is a classic that's read a lot actually by all sorts of different people um which sits in the middle quite neatly, and again the, the, we can place but these books will shift and change depending on where and when they're read and by whom so what we see here is the sort of range of both predictable and unforeseeable forces that sort of um, compound our uh, attachment to novels and the way that changes. Again, one of the things we're looking at by looking at a particular moment in time is how books change or their reading changes depending on, you know, where in history they're being read and how. And um, yeah, these two systems, I think, operate not exclusively. They operate, you know, there's a lot of, the Venn diagram—they overlap and um, become sort of mutually um, complicated and involuted.
0: Yeah. Let's move on to another novel because you have—you yeah. know—you have a chapter on the plague. There's a chapter uh, almost exclusively devoted to Jane Eyre. You have another chapter to the reading of Summer, which is a novel by the Scottish author Ali Smith, and, and it was published in 2020. So we talked about why you chose Jane Eyre for this previous chapter. So why Summer? Why does Summer get its own chapter here?
1: So Summer gets its own chapter because it's often, even now, seen as the first, possibly the first sort of novel to deal with COVID or treat COVID in some way. It's not a COVID novel, but it does feature in the novel. And so this chapter was interesting. That book is interesting for us because it sort of gives us a case. It gave us a case study to look at the slipperiness of time and also the way in which books can at least try to sort of anticipate their own reception. They can sort of, because Smith, with with the Quartet series, she's writing right up until the moment that it's pretty much published. The publish, publication schedule is really quick for that. And you can see how she's um, hooked, for some of our readers say, or shoehorned COVID in, to a novel that probably didn't start off with COVID in it, because she's writing right during those lockdown moments. So, for us, it gave us a, a, an interesting case study about um, sort of contemporary literature and novels that try to be as up to the present as possible, which is what Smith's sort of doing in that series. Yes, there are lots of historical resonances and um, connections, but there's a part of the strand, one strand is to try and be as up to the moment as possible, which we often associate more with social media or other art forms. Um, And of course, some of the readers talked about this, of of wanting to, you know, waiting for this novel to come out or anticipating it and um, sort of eagerly awaiting it. uh, And particularly because summer 2020 um, was often seen as a sort of respite, particularly in the UK from COVID. It was a moment where we were allowed sort of to travel a little bit and to go back out. And we had all sorts of government schemes that tried to get people to eat in restaurants. Um, And it was seen as a sort of publishing event and something to look forward to. And what's interesting is that any novel that tries to do that um, or tries to be of the moment actually shows up that it can only ever be sort of one part of the moment itself. Um, it doesn't offer, obviously, it doesn't offer some sort of objective outside viewpoint because books become, you know, in sort of Latour's terms, part of the network in which they're circulating and trying. To describe, so it's quite. Int- I think it's a quite an interesting case study for that sort of um, way in which there isn't. Again, there isn't any particular single frame of reading it because in the future people will read this with all sorts of other frames. So it's again a way of exploring um, the contemporary novel and the sort of slipperiness of time and the way in which frames shift and move uh, and will continue to do so. So books aren't you know, held in a vacuum, as it were, or or always fixed and solidified. Um, And just to finish, what's also interesting about that novel is some of the people we talked to said they never even, they couldn't even remember the COVID elements of it. So so to them, it doesn't really even register as a COVID um, narrative or, or, you know, they completely forget about that. So again, I think that's interesting when we think about literary criticism, because you can imagine people in the future focusing on the COVID moment. And yet, actually, to some of the people who read it at the time during lockdown, that just wasn't that important to them, or didn't register as much.
0: Yeah, because our our historical moment, which is so funny, that's what we said about typhoid in Jane Eyre, was I, I was like when I read your book, I'm like, oh, that's right. Like you, but you like it doesn't. Even, it's a plot device when you read it ten years ago, and now it's kind of funny that people in the future will say, well, obviously, you know, people are drawn to Jane Eyre because of the typhoid element. Oh. You're like, well, not yeah, not in 1990. Yeah, yeah
1: yeah it is yeah it's, it's, and it is a way of capturing again that you know that ethnographic work is a way of capturing readers yeah. how they read yeah
0: so moving on to long reads I, I I cannot resist asking you this question there's a famous episode of the Twilight Zone, the sci-fi show from 1959. Called time enough at last. Are you familiar with this episode? Yeah, that's
1: one of my. Uh, that is probably one of my all-time favorites. Oh, that's great. It's heartbreaking, right? Yes, it is
0: heartbreaking. <laughs> so, as a, as a as a as a somebody who studies reading habits, this has to be you know one of your g- great you know heart-rendering, like you said, episodes. So, for our listeners, in case they're unfamiliar with it, this is one where you know Burgess Meredith is this banker. He just wants to read. He never has time. Everyone seems to make fun of him as being a nerdish bookworm there's a nuclear war. He becomes excited. He'll, he'll, he has enough food. He's okay. He's finally going to have enough time to read everything. But then in classic Twilight Zone manner, he breaks his glasses and he's not going to be able to read a word. And I kept thinking of that in your chapter on long reads, because you ask this question, you say, are long reads compatible with life under new conditions of crisis and confinement? And so I kept thinking of poor Burgess Meredith. I kept thinking of us trying to get onto these long reads. So what did, what did you learn about those those Mount Everest's of, of our reading lives? And were they compatible with lockdown?
1: So again, uh, the thing that you often find when you, you know, talk to readers is that there's no single answer, right? So um, there's, no coher- there's no nice sort of um, pattern here. So we saw um, Laura, one of our readers, reads Moby Dick. Um, We see other readers reading Life and Fate, um, and then Hilary Mantel's book, um, the last in the Wolf Hall trilogy, which comes out in early, I think, March 2020. So, yeah, so there there are a range of responses to this. Some people definitely found the long read um, as something that, again... um, was it, it was to do with time, it was a way to um, engage in a longer read because they now had more time, and it was a way to sort of spend time. Um, Laura, for instance, found Moby Dick, um, which isn't a... It's not a huge novel, actually, when you look at it, but it's, it's considered long in some ways. But um, Moby Dick, which has always sort of had the potential to provoke um, ideas of mortality, right? But for her, these became particularly resonant during lockdown. Um, and what we see again is um, there's a sort of tension in her reading of that between the uncertainty of life and the duration and sort of immortality of a, this particular long read. So again, as you were saying earlier, we know we're getting to the end of a novel where where our thumb is or our bookmark. Um, and again, this becomes a sort of model in a lot of literary theory, this idea of reaching the end. We can, you know, Peter Brooks and the anticipation of retrospection and Commode talking about the beginning and end. Um, and that was particularly important for her, these philosophical moments in Melville, as a, a, alongside all the other bits, you know, the long descriptions of knots and stuff and whales. Um, and then with um, Life and Fate is an interesting one. So this sort of um, horrific novel about the Battle of Stalingrad, um, two of the readers told us they deliberately chose this long, horrible, grueling read because it would put lockdown in perspective and then they would realize that actually they were fine um and then I think the other reader who really is interesting in this um regard is a woman who who struggles to read um hillary mantel's um l- the last volume volume of um the trilogy because she says she realizes it's so big and she doesn't want to die in the middle of it because she doesn't want to... Um, that, she says that would be the sort of worst thing that could possibly happen. Um, she's really worried about sort of dying and not knowing the end. Um, so again, what we see here is really is the way in which... Um, you know, the the sort of... The ways in which narrative may want to lead us to an end and we took a lot of theorists and a lot of narratologists to talk about this, but we see how that actually comes up against, you know, reading and readers in their own time. And so the reality of that long read, um, is part of that, um, sort of complex investigation. um, um so real ends and fictive ends, if you like, can often compete with one another and they do, you know, the, the, we're not all going to reach the end. It's not, you know, um, uh, Alexandra, that's her name. That's all I'm looking for. Um, her real fear, and she had a real fear early on of dying from COVID, um, it actually does um, um, impede her ability to begin a novel, let alone end it. And of course, the other thing is she knows what's going to happen to Cromwell, um, which, I'm, you know, that's not a spoiler because, um, and she's also worried about that sort of, you know, deathly end as well. So she's sort of doubly worried in all sorts of ways. So the long read, um, I think that chapter gives a really sort of interesting account of the ways in which narrative ends, fictive ends, and um, real endings, if you like, or real ends, all converge on this question of reading and the use of time or, or the passing of time as well.
0: I loved um, when I was reading Laura's descriptions of Moby Dick. The other thing that I found so refreshing about her reactions was that she part of her experience was she said Moby Dick was nothing like I thought it was going to be the parts of it that are very funny. like So I, I'm a big admirer of that novel. So when, when I when I finally convince people to read it, they say, they think it's good. And they're like, oh, it's great. There's all this great stuff in it. Right? So it's kind of funny that like, you know, like Burgess Meredith, she finally had the time and her glasses to experience this book.
1: Yeah, I think that's really interesting. Yeah. Again, it's a bit like your New Yorkers sort of analogy. Unless they go to the Empire State Building, they're not going to know...
0: Well, yeah, everyone well. knows it's the whale and everyone knows Captain uh-huh. Ahab and, yeah. and things like that. But until you actually read it, you know, your your description of long reads there also reminded me about, about you know, wanting to finish the trilogy and knowing what happened and I want to die in the middle. There, there's something about the long read, which is akin, I think, to the idea of binge watching. So now we're in lockdown and I'm going to watch, you know, all of Breaking Bad in, you know, in, in a week because it's going to fill up my time and it's going to distract me from the doom scrolling, right? There's something going on there where they're connected, right?
1: Yeah. And I think that's probably, you know, some of that probably relates to attention that you're attending yeah. to the same thing um, and seeing it through. Um, then also you're, you know, with, with Breaking Bad or with Moby Dick, you're living with the same characters over a longer period of time than if you're switching between books or reading short stories or scrolling or um, anything like that. So I think maybe also come, you know, it comes back to that question we were talking about earlier about sort of control or, um agency this idea of picking up a long novel and seeing it through gives you back some sort of structure which again was often missing in those earlier moments of lockdown in particular and um uh and yeah I think that's interesting um um that again it becomes something this we talk about in the in the book as well it becomes something the division between reading and life here sort of um, at least blurs these characters, because you're living with them for longer, again, sort of take up much more of your attention or um, uh, uh, focus. And they, they sort of bleed into your everyday life in a way, which I think, uh, and I think that's what I'm guess. well, that's what a lot of people like, particularly, you know, the, the reader who's living with Anna Karenina.
0: That was just thinking the same yeah. thing, yeah.
1: She she does really see um lockdown life as being something about you know russia and anna karenina and affairs and she does it's it's, i think that's one of the really interesting interviews that she really does see this merging of literature and life um and they're not separate and i think as we know people who love books and reading and studying literature they you know we know or that's what we hope for people to see that there isn't this sort of separation and it actually informs us in all sorts of ways
0: right and of course, when you finish a long read, you do feel the sense of accomplishment. <clears throat> like, I fi- like Laura, said, yeah, I finished Moby Dick. Or someone might say, you know, I finished Ulysses or I finished the Ambassadors. Now, of course, it reminds me of what you said earlier about literary gossip is that as soon as you finish Moby Dick, one of the first things you want to do is talk to somebody about it. And you're kind of stuck in this room, uh, so to speak. And so you'll Zoom, but it kind of, it's like the one thing your book made me think about is to what degree did the lockdown bring back like the kind of literary discussions we imagine happening at, you know, Johnson's Club or something (laughs) or or things like that.
1: Yeah. So yeah, there are a couple of points, I guess there. There's an interesting article by David Denby um, who goes back to Columbia. um, He wrote a book about that, that. Yeah. yeah. And then he actually has to, they do the course online via Zoom. So there's a whole interesting discussion of that, and we talk about that in the book a little bit. Um, and then, as, as we said, we do get people, um, some of the readers really phoning up people to talk about what they've read or these characters. That happens with the Anna Karenina example uh, and people talking about the way they sort of live with these characters. Um, and, um, and also people, whether it's through Goodreads um, or other forms, actually sort of, performing or, or producing little pieces of criticism about them so yeah i think and one of the things we talk about right at the end of the book is the way that this moment and it is a moment at least shows that literary culture or forms of reading either became alive again or were you know much more um, in the in everyone's lives than they perhaps had been for a little while or and we don't know how that will end we don't know if people will carry on with in that vein or um, what, I, what I think hopefully we do know is the importance or, or points to the importance of reading um, in these sorts of moments of crisis or confinement and what reading possibly the role it can play in people's lives. And that's not all good. And it's not all it's not that sort of all escapism but it you know we've seen how much reading has meant to people and what it did for people so i think yeah i think that's really important actually
0: yeah okay so last question let's it's a big one it's a big one <laughs> so you end the book by talking about what the three of you hope to have accomplished and you say that one of your goals was this this is a quote by you you say to show up the false binary inherent in the so-called method wars. And I'm making air quotes with method wars there. So you talk about the method wars actually earlier in the book, but so can you end by talking about the debates among people who think about reading what these method wars are and, and why you wanted to bring this up at the very end of the book? Mm-hmm.
1: So, um, well, obviously as we said, we're do- we this is sort of sociological ethnographic study. So, in some senses, we could be aligned with one side of the method wars, which is the sort of post-critique um, element. But what we hope to show is that actually this is a false binary because you can, the idea of sort of um, critical reading and following readers, they're not mutually exclusive. And that's what we do. We still we talk about the way in which, um, uh, you know, we offer readings of novels, which, which would be part of a sort of traditional form of critique or um, uh, critical um, tradition. But we also show um, how that can be enhanced or challenged or merged with various forms of post-critique. They're not completely oppos- you know, oppositional. And the nexus we're really looking at is books, readers and reading in time and space. So texts still mean things and they require and deserve critical attention and forms of critique, um, but they're also read by people and they have all sorts of unpredictable lives um, and roles in people's lives. Um, and one thing we show hopefully is actually, um, you know, form readers can't neatly be packaged into different groups either, sort of academic, professional or the term often used is lay readers. A lot of the readers we speak to write and talk about books in all sorts of critical ways. So, um, yeah, what we're really trying to do is show that there's this entanglement between books, readers, and reading, and that books um, exist in the coordinates of time and space, as do readers. And actually, if we're going to study that type... For this project, uh, I guess we're arguing that sort of all sides of the sociological and literary... Debate must be brought to bear in order to understand what the readers are telling us. Um, so we are making a sort of uh, position, where we, ha- we adopt a position where forms of critique and criticism and post-critique all merge. And hopefully that gives a much more sort of uh, multifaceted overview of this complex sort of historical moment in which readers and reading and books have been so important.
0: Ben Davies, it was great discussing this book with you. Um, reading novels during the COVID-19 pandemic is available wherever books and of course novels are sold. You can also get a copy linked from the New Books Network. I, I highly encourage anybody who's been had their curiosity piqued by this conversation to get a copy. Thank you so much, Ben.
1: Thank you, Dan. That's been great. That's really enjoyable. Thank you.